Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience and healthcare organizations. And we do this through stories, through your stories and the stories of other professionals and patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use with patients right away. Today, I am talking with a really special guest, Dr. Bruce Perry. Dr. Perry is the principal of the Neurosequential Network, Senior Fellow of the Child Trauma Academy. Over the last 30 years, Dr. Perry has been an active teacher, clinician, and researcher in children's mental health and the neurosciences. His work on the impact of abuse, neglect, and trauma on the developing brain has impacted clinical practice, programs, and policy across the world. Dr. Perry is the author of The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, Born for Love, and most recently co-authored a book called What Happened to You, Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing with Oprah Winfrey, which came out in 2021. His clinical research on the la- over the last 20 years has focused on integrating emerging principles of developmental neuroscience into clinical practice, and this work has resulted in development of innovative clinical practices and programs working with maltreated and traumatized kids. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Perry. I'm so glad you're here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, that's your formal introduction as it is. Anything else you'd want to add about yourself or what you're currently working on? Um, well, I, I, I'm working on a lot of stuff. I'm part of a really um, active interdisciplinary community that's actually, actually, I think we're in like 30 countries now. And, um, you know, we're working on the same issues that you are in one way or another. Um, some of the people we work with are embedded in the medical system. A lot of them are in child welfare, some in education, a lot in um, early childhood, and some in probation. Uh, you know, we're doing work with the courts. So we're we're working with people in a lot of different arenas, trying to help them uh, understand some of the concepts uh, and principles of how the brain develops, how the brain changes, how experience influences our behavior. And really at the at the core of all of that is understanding stress and understanding uh, patterns of stress and the, the influence that uh, these systems, these pervasive systems in our body uh, can influence how we think and feel and behave and so forth. So we, we think that... Um, you know, we would love to see sort of a a core body of knowledge become common knowledge. And we think these core concepts, by and large, are pretty easy to understand. We teach this to kids in, that are six years old. They, they learn a little bit about this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's ironic at times, you know, because we don't intentionally teach a lot of this stuff in medical school, we will have foster parents who we work with for a while start to know more about this than physicians, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit embarrassing being a physician. And, um, (laughs) but that's kind of the reality of where this field is right now, that, that the, the emergence of these concepts is the uptake is really different in different systems. Agreed. Yeah. Um, How would you say the definition of trauma has evolved over the last five years? I don't, uh, you know, it's interesting. You can talk to four or five different trauma experts and they all have a slightly different variation of a definition. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's 
uh, <laughs> that has evolved is that people agree that there's uh, there are different frames of reference when you use that language. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, by and large, when people th- you hear the term trauma and you're in a medical setting, they're thinking about, you know, a trauma center that deals with people that got cracked up in a car accident. They're thinking about trauma to the body, you know, breaking something in the body, head injury, car accident, and so forth. I think more and more people are beginning to appreciate that that language is also being used in mental health and education. It's, you know, people use it all the time from their own frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that there have been lots of initiatives to try to create a common consensus definition, there really isn't a common consensus definition. Aside from the broad awareness that a trauma is basically something that um, disrupts a physiological system uh, in a way that compromises function. And, um, you know, there's that, and you can look at that in a lot of different ways. So I, my personal, I think, favorite, it's not really a definition, it's sort of a conceptualization, is the SAMHSA three E's conceptualization, where there's a recognition that there is uh, an event, there is the experience of the person who's in the event, and then there are effects of the experience uh, from the event, and that they all have important elements. And depending upon your frame of reference, you, you'll be referring to uh, one or another. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, people who work in, with kids that have autism, for example, are very well aware that a crazy field trip to the zoo where kids are out of control and wild and everything like that it could have the potential to be dysregulating and disruptive and potentially traumatic for a child with autism, whereas whereas a regular kid's going to think it's exciting and fun and out of control, but then after it's over, they get back to their baseline. And I think one of the one of the key things again is that that with a little bit of teaching about these systems, the specific language around trauma is, is easier to understand. Yeah. And it, you know, you were a young resident and young physician at one time. How, how did you begin to realize that we had to start looking at the effect of trauma? Like why, why did that become an interest to you? Why did it feel necessary to look into further? Well, I started, I, I, the whole, I was actually a neuroscience, I had a PhD in neurobiology and was studying the development of the stress response system. So I was looking at literally patterns of stress activation and changes in the brain in in primates and rats. And so by the time I started doing clinical work, what, what the thing that struck me the most was how little physicians were appreciating the stress response. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when they did look at it, it was very linear. It was sort of very focused on the HPA axis. You know, it, it still is, you know, people get trauma 101 and they go, oh, Cortisol, you know, is causing all of this. And the reality is cortisol, honestly, is not the major physiological mediator of long-term impact of, of trauma. It's, it's one of many things that kind of go awry when there are traumatic experiences. But, you know, people like linear explanations. And, um, and the HPA axis was something that we could measure. 
Mm-hmm. And so this, this is a, this is an interesting phenomenon in in kind of the sociology of medicine, the sociology of science is that we end up because we can measure something, we end up giving it disproportionate power in our explanations and theoretical formulations. Yeah. And um, you know, now if we started at ground zero and and didn't know anything about the human being and and look look took all the tools we have to look at the internal physiology and neuroanatomy and neurobiology, cortisol would just be a minor player in all this. But, and same with the amygdala, you know, we talk about the amygdala, like, oh, the amygdala is, you know, you flipped your lid. Even the people that study the amygdala keep trying to get everybody to recognize that the amygdala is not the fear center. You know, it's just part of a whole set of systems that are involved in, in regulating lots of emotions, not just threat. So our the complexity of the human body, including the brain, is such that it makes it challenging to have these simple linear explanations that are easy to teach, easier mm-hmm. to disseminate, and, and so forth. And so, you know, I know a lot of people that have their trauma-informed practice or program that they're going to use for school or whatever it is, and they'll, you know, they'll have a eight, nine, 10 hours of stuff. And, and, you know, we have in our group, working group, just the lowest level of certification is 110 hours. Yeah. So it, and that's post educate, you know, that's postgraduate training. So we, and we're just touching the surface. And, and so I, I think the dilemma we have as a field is that we have to develop better translators you know, we have people that are really good at, you know, we're generating new facts, new factoids. I mean, in fact, in the neurosciences, that's this stuff, that information is exploding. And then we have people that are doing really hard work on the front lines. What we don't have are people who kind of have one foot in the science and one foot in the practical application of that science and are able to translate it. And in fact, in academic medicine, translators are are not viewed as uh, given as much, uh, if you will, credibility, power, you know, influence as the people that are generating the the new information, which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's I think it's great that people are doing all these new things, and we have so much to learn. But it, it's we we're. We just are very inefficient at taking what we're learning, turning that into practical application so that it can be disseminated and used and have a positive impact on people. That, sort of that whole translational medicine part is very weak in our field. Yeah. You know, when you say 110 hours and there's a physician listening to this podcast, right? And right. That's exactly why I'm not talking about trauma right. because I, right. I couldn't even begin. So, you know, on this podcast, we talk about how trauma could present even subtly in patients. Um, Where would you start if you were a physician now, right? Not just looking at cortisol and right, but like, where would you start? Well, what what we've recognized is that the, the, once you're sort of an active, busy professional, the best way to learn is in context of your own work. And, and so we've chosen a, a model where we don't, have people take time off and come and spend a hundred hours learning. We 
feather this content into the working week of the professional. So they don't, you know, maybe it's an hour a week or, and, and, and the hour is actually um, discussing a client where there were obvious signs and symptoms that they couldn't understand that, that they might, now they're beginning to understand that might be related to trauma. Mm-hmm. So a classic example is syncope of unknown origin. It's very commonly a presenting symptom of somebody who has a sensitized dissociative mm-hmm. response. Right. Or kids that come into uh, the general practitioner or the pediatrician and they have ADHD. Oh, yes. 40% of those kids are going to have chaos, threat, trauma as contributing factors to that and, and so you just get people to start thinking a little bit differently. And then as they see their colleagues present a case and when they present a case and, and there are these basically like an annotated conversations, um, little by little, there's a, a shift in what they think is important to ask about what, what's uh, helpful for them in their in their clinical practice. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, part of the dilemma we're facing, and I'm sure that other people have brought this up, is that every single physician that I know, every single caseworker I know, every single teacher I know, every every single person working in any of our public systems Mm -hmm. is working at a near crisis level. Agree. The rate of work, the demands, the paperwork, the, the it, it really makes it very challenging for you to have reflective time where you can have professional development growth. And, and it's just, you know, I think we've got these broader systemic issues that, um, that we need to address um, if we're really going to get meaningful, if we're going to get rapid change. Ultimately, the, the the beautiful thing about the truth is that it ultimately emerges. You know, ultimately, you know, whether it's two decades or whether it's five decades, ultimately, physicians will understand that a significant portion of these physical health presentations have developmental trauma as a contributing factor. You know, mm-hmm. when people look at this in the ERs or in psychiatric clinics or in, in other places, it's amazing how many people have a mental health issue that is a confound or a contributor to the presenting symptom, whether it's, you know, classic diabetes or, or cardiovascular problems, high blood pressure, um, you know, you know, the, a physician trying to help somebody to stop, stop smoking or eat but it healthier, both of those are going to have trauma-related Absolutely. factors that are contributing. Not, not all, you know, and it's not always a hundred percent of the, but it's it, it you cannot see those things clearly without understanding trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Even when I consult with physicians about this, if I just say, let's just start to okay, let's put ADHD aside, maybe let's look at all the other things that could be, right? And often we can get to that space of trauma or adversity, right? I mean, the only reason someone's smoking that much or eating that much overeating, if you will, is because they're using it as a coping mechanism, right? Right, right. Um, I want to circle back to your point about physicians, especially and healthcare providers being like constantly in this stress mode. Right. Um, I don't think there's a lot of space in physician education or training about their own trauma. 
Right. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I mean, there's two there's two parts of that that I think are important. One is that the the nature of the work that they're about to be doing is going to be filled with all kinds of things that have the potential to cause a adverse impact on them. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many people who in the last three years have been working in ICU units as nurses or physicians, the death, the helplessness, the, it just, it's, it, it, it impacts you in ways that, that um, are very profound and, and in, ca- in some cases traumatic. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is what they bring into, you know, what happened to them as they were growing up. And it, it, if physicians are like the rest of the population, which by and large, they probably are 15 to 20% of them, if not more are going to have personal histories of the death of a parent or witnessing violence or come growing up in an alcoholic home or something that influences their, their functioning. Mm -hmm. And uh, without an awareness that your personal history is going to have an impact on how you learn and how you act as a physician, you're just not going to be your best. And in many cases, you're going to be at risk for repeating some of the unhealthy things that happened to you. Mm-hmm. And we see this all the time. I mean, you know, some of the highest profile cases that we've dealt with in the la- in in our field in the last I don't know, 10 years have to do with physicians exploiting patients. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, what happened with the gymnasts? And, yes. and that's just one example. Mm-hmm. There are many other, you know, uh, the OB guy who's using his own sperm to inseminate everybody. You know, what the, what the hell is that all about? I mean, there's some, something's messed up there. And so it, it and this is true for everybody. I mean, the more you understand your own blind spots, your own biases, your own vulnerabilities, the easier it is for you to avoid repeating them and to get on our healing journey instead of sort of a, uh, you know, the this sort of post-traumatic process of uh, spreading your pain around, which, which happens. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's, it's especially tough in the medical field to talk about either our own trauma or the even the trauma of your patients, right? Why does that feel so almost untouchable? Well, at the risk of sort of, you know, I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of physicians go bullshit when I start saying this, but the part of the dilemma is the the system of selection and then training involves tremendous sort of power differentials where there's this dominance hierarchy where um, you weakness is something that is just uh, sort of predatorily attacked by people that are either in competition with you or in a a dominance position over you. Mm -hmm. So people become fearful of expressing any kind of vulnerability. And um, it's because it's a classic hierarchical power uh, permeated system. And until that's sort of dismantled, you know, everybody who has any kind of non-dominant feature 
is going to be marginalized, whether it's non-dominance in your your woman in surgery or non-dominance that you are a black man uh, or uh, you're an you're not the right, you know, you're not a white male with power. Mm-hmm. And that's where medicine came from. Mm-hmm. Medicine was a, a patriarchal system. And we, and again, it's, this is, this is part of what I'm working on right now and writing about is that systems take longer to change than people. Mm-hmm. So the systems that we have now really are carrying forward elements of practice and and um and, and if you will sort of program elements that are carry forwards from this very you know from a century ago yes you know we just let women you know women didn't used to be physicians mm-hmm. women used to have to pretend they were men to go to medical school and that was just like 100 years ago mm-hmm. and so we still have a lot of that, you know. I, I when I went through went through medical school, uh, I asked about something I don't even remember what it was, and the answer from the the person at Yale, who was a white male who'd come from through that system, when is now basically at a chairman level, said, "That's the way we do it at Yale, and that's the way we'll always it's always been done that way, and that's the way it's always going to be done," right. even though it was completely irrational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but and that's just a fragment of that kind of thing that exists in medicine, that we have a lot of things that are just needlessly marginalizing, brutalizing, humiliating. And then the last thing you want to do if you're at the bottom of a power differential is say, hey, I'm even more vulnerable. (laughs) Oh, by the way, I've got a mental health issue. Yes. You know, it's interesting that you use the word predatory, you know, that right now the AMA just came out with, you know, a a study that showed that 63% of physicians right now are experiencing burnout. One of the the guests that I interviewed a couple of uh, weeks ago used the term grooming behavior when it comes to medical education, that, you know, there's really this kind of institutionalism of not talking about things that would make you appear weak. And then when I talk to female physicians, really they're creating beautiful disruption in these organizations about what it means to be a mom, to be a caregiver, um, to want to take care of your elderly parents and to be a physician at the same time. So I I think you're right. Those individuals are creating disruption and change. Right. And, and, and I would bet to a person, they will tell you that in the beginning of this disruptive process, they're kind of ignored. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they start to get attacked because they're worried that that's going to spread throughout the system. Yeah. And and ultimately they'll get co-opted. You know, the concept will get co-opted, and then they probably won't even get credit for it. Some some white male will get credit for being oh, you know, they want to use you for PR, and then it just it, this is the nature of how systems perpetuate power. They just like there are mechanisms of homeostasis in all of our physiological systems in our body, trying to keep us at equilibrium. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with systems. They have mechanisms of homeostasis, trying to keep the status quo. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of things we're talking about are really at odds with the dominant perspective. Uh, e- even to this day, many physicians, when they're coming up against a physical health symptom that they can't explain, they'll say, oh, it's functional or 
like, wait a minute. So the brain isn't part of the body. I think mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, and so they just separated it off. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we just, again, we're, it's going to take a long time to change some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you say often in books of yours that I've read and interviews that I've listened to is the power of relationships to be a vehicle of change, whether that may be within the system or even between the the physician and the patient. Can you say more about how important that is? Yeah, it's interesting that if you, no matter what perspective you use, anthropology, developmental psychology, you know, any of the sort of disciplines in medicine, one of the most powerful and important factors in health, development, success, et cetera, is the, the nature and stability of the relationships you have. Mm-hmm. And so relational poverty puts you at risk for physical health problems, social health problems, emotional problems, and so forth. And this is all tied into the fact that human beings are basically social creatures. We are intended to work and live and function in groups. Mm-hmm. So my the physiology of a person is dramatically influenced by the presence of other people. Mm-hmm. And if those people are sending you signals that you belong, you're one of us, your stress response system is better regulated, your reward neurobiology is getting fed, which means, number one, you're less likely to do things to get reward that are unhealthy, like smoke cigarettes, overeat, you know, drink too much take a drug of abuse. All all of those things are trying to fill up these reward buckets we have. But if you get your reward from being a welcome member of a relationally rich group, the pull to do all that stuff just drops. Right, right. And same thing with that. Your what I said about your stress response system. So when your stress response system is more smoothly regulated, it basically doesn't beat up your heart, your lung, your skin, your gut, and everything else. But if you are surrounded by nonstop, unpredictable stressors in an urban environment, away from any relational belonging, mm-hmm. um, it literally makes your stress response systems all the way from your immune system to how your you know different sort of cardiovascular, you know, respiratory, all these systems start to function at a higher level of activation, they work harder. And so you literally are, are, it's like, it's like driving a car 10,000 miles and, and never changing the, you know, the, the oil and you just keep driving it and keep driving. And pretty soon, if you beat a car, if you drive it hard and you don't change the oil, you it breaks down. And that's what happens to bodies. And literally, if you look at people that have these develop, histories of developmental trauma or even have post uh, have classic middle life or young adult life trauma like combat, their morbidity and mortality curves are shifted to the left. They get sick earlier and they die earlier. And this is just because you're just wearing out, you know, the person's physiology. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we know is that relationships, even in the presence of stressors, help buffer that overreactivity of your stress response. So you can have a lot of hard things going on out in the world, but if you come back into your community and into your family, you're more regulated and you're more capable of tolerating those stressors. But the modern world has created this real, real 
remarkable relational uh, fragility because one third of us have moved away from our extended family. One third of us move every year. You know, even if we go to a community that has all kinds of positive things, it takes a while to create a set of friends and to create a sense of belonging. But as long as we're mobile and we are in front of screens and we're away from our extended family, we literally are creating relational poverty that makes us all much more vulnerable to any stressor that we have. And um, and that means as a population, we're going to be more ill. We're going to eat more. We're going to drink more. We're going to have more substance abuse. We're going to have more suicide. We're going to have more diabetes. All of the physical health problems that have any stress contributor are going to go up. And we see this again and again and again. Now, the good news is that when you take a fragmented community and you begin to rebuild it, mm-hmm. and you begin to reconnect the sense of community, and, and then all of those things go down. And some of the best work on that has been done uh, with some of the First Nations communities up in Canada. Yeah. And anyway, I'm rambling. Sorry. Oh, it's incredible. If when we think about relational change in primary care, for instance, like an OBGYN who might see a pregnant mom a couple dozen times or a pediatrician who sees a family over the course of their life, how does that relationship, how can that relationship? change things for that family. Yeah, no, and I this is such an important point. And this is where I think modern medicine has just is slipping. And I don't think that's that it's coming from the physicians. I think most physicians understand this. But relational continuity is mm-hmm. really important. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, the these systems are tending to view physicians and other healthcare professionals as interchangeable widgets. Agreed. And we aren't. Mm-hmm. The the placebogenic impact, the positive healing impact of a relationship takes place because there's time to build the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a healthcare team that you know over time, you are going to have much better outcomes than if you have the exact same group of people providing the exact same prescriptions and all the other stuff, but you don't know them. You're going to be much less likely to be compliant with what they recommend. You're going to be much less likely to feel regulated by seeing them. You're going to feel much less likely to literally be able to imagine that they're there and feel calmer, which is one of the most powerful things about having a relationship with a healthcare professional is that you don't have to see them to feel better, right? You just know they're there. That makes you feel better. You know, one of the interesting things, Vince Folletti, he you should get him on the here to talk to you at some point. But one of the things he showed a long time ago is that when he had people come in for the first time and he would sit down with them and he would actually get to know them, listen to them, he'd spend extra time. And, and it was maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour, which was sort of like more than he was supposed to be seeing these folks. These people over the next year would utilize healthcare services much less than the people that you'd see just like they were, you know, your, here's your 15 minutes. He formed this connection. He listened to them. He made them feel like they were, they were heard, they were seen. And, and, and their doctor was knew about their issues mm-hmm. and knew about their life. And, and later on when they had a few problems, rather than coming into the ER, 
they might make a call to the clinic and go, you know, you you know, when's my next appointment? Just a little reassurance. Yes. It so again, the point is these relationships are specific and they're important. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think that kind of the modern thing, it's like, oh, it's five o'clock, I'm done. And as opposed to my patient, it's my patient in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or obviously you said replacing them, right? Like right. you can't see your physician, exactly. so you see somebody else who's a replacement, but there's not really a replacement for someone that you have talked about trauma with or talked about a, a horribly right. adverse event with. Exactly. And and the and the, of course there are times when you have to get cross coverage and all the, but there are ways to do that that help hand off the person in a way that we can take advantage of the neurobiology of the brain. And see, and this is one of the things that we, we help physicians understand is that there is a very interesting phenomenon in your brain that has to do with uh, any friend of yours is a friend of mine, you know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So when the physician who's handing off love this. gives endorsement mm-hmm. to this person, it, it, it literally is like transferring the part of not all, but part of that emotional connection. Mm-hmm. But if you just sort of like don't do it and you don't have an adequate handoff, if you don't take five minutes to kind of be on a Zoom to introduce him mm-hmm. and say he's a good guy, you know, I'm getting old, I got to retire. He, he, he's he's not me, but he's pretty good. You got to give him a chance. Mm-hmm. And these that makes a huge difference. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking with a, a physician who practices rural medicine and he said, you know, of course he and his partner have to cross cover for each other. They need to like have breaks and go out of town in their EHR. They have a place dedicated to um, just personal antidote. And so if I'm covering for you or you're covering for me, you can go in and you can say, oh, you know what? Uh, Dr. Weiser said that your mom was sick. How's she doing? Perfect. Yeah. And it's just there. It's there. They both know it's there and it creates huge amounts of trust. That's what you're saying, right? It's like exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, and I I think there are lots of things that sort of a trauma aware, developmentally sensitive practice can, can do to increase this relational uh, bonding uh, that aren't that don't take a lot of time that don't take a lot of um you know effort uh, that can still be done in a modern practice one of the things we do for example is when we see somebody when i know i'm going to be seeing a new a new kid i i send them a picture of me or i'll make a little video mm-hmm. and and like a like like 30 second video hey i'm dr perry you know you and i are going to talk in a couple of, you know here i want i want listen you you don't have to tell me anything you don't want to I'm looking forward to hanging out with you. Uh, you know, you think about what you feel like you can share with me. It's all up to you. You just, that took me what, 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. But when they see your face, there's a, there's a really, it's, and it goes back to what I said earlier, the human beings are social creatures. So part of our brain is continually looking for attributes that, you know, nonverbal cues, verbal cues that you belong, that you're safe, that this person's safe. So when you meet a person that's completely new, your brain goes, like that. And then it takes a while for them to kind of feel connected enough. But you can do some of that up front so that when you meet them in person the first time, they go, Oh, I know you. Uh, and the other thing that we've done is we've we've sort of photoshopped photos of somebody they trust with the doctor, right? Right. So okay. we get the permission of the parent and we say, listen, here's what we do. 
we want to take advantage of this. Any friend of yours is a friend of mine. So if we give your child a picture of us together, mm-hmm. um, that literally will make them feel safer when I when they see us. Um, Amazing. And the other thing that you said that I, I picked up on is when you send that little video, you just gave about three choices. Yep, exactly. Decide give them choice. Talk about, talk, don't talk, share as much or as little. Now that you're already putting out that felt sense of safety, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 give give them this sense of control that listen, this is this is your time. We'll do whatever you want. Um you know, if you want to just sit there and play by yourself and ignore me, that's okay. But I'm actually kind of fun. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see. But um, this is what we're. This is what this is what to expect. So part of what you're trying to do, the unknown makes people feel more upset than almost anything. Absolutely. So if this kid doesn't know what's why I'm going there, they usually think they're going there because they've been bad, or not at least to a mental health professional, but to the f- other physician. You know, you might want to send out a little video and go, hey, listen, this is Dr. So-and-so, you're coming in. And uh, listen, I just want you to know, you're not getting shots this time, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> that's what they're like, oh, shit, I'm going to get shots. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Or whatever it is. And just tell them. If you tell people what to expect, say, this is going to be about 15 minutes long. You're going to see a nurse. She's going to take your blood pressure. She's going to weigh you. And if you have the doctor do that, you can almost make a generic one. I love that. Mm-hmm. Make it easy. But if they if they know what to expect, it's so much better. Well, and I think about like a teenager in primary care who maybe the doctor only sees once a year, right? They're not seeing them every right. two or three months anymore. And they're really right. seeing the kid, not the parent. Just that little video beforehand. Hey, here's what to expect. I'm going to ask you some questions, right? Because otherwise physicians do try to talk about, you know, like screens and sex and drugs and all the things right. we shouldn't be talking about with teens. And this kid's right. like, uh, no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh, I love that idea. Um, for a physician who might be wondering, like, what's an opening question that they might ask to just feel like when I train physicians, they're super intimidated in, about talking about trauma, right? They're going to open a can of worms. Right. What's a gentle entryway that you might advise them when they're talking with a dyad or a teenager? Yeah. So here, what I tend to do is I, and again, a lot of people may not have the time to do this, but I, I basically go like, where, where were you born? Where are you from? Mm-hmm. I literally start like, mm-hmm. how'd you get here? It's sort mm-hmm. of, and what'll happen is as they sort of walk through how they got here, you'll end up, there'll be opportunities where you go, wait a minute, I thought you were living in there now. Oh, how did that happen? And then they'll say, oh, you know, I got removed. You know, my mom was struggling, blah, blah, blah. And I went into foster care for a while. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, wow. what's That must have been hard. Then, But if you have somebody kind of trace Mm -hmm. and tell their story, a couple things happen. One is that you may not get to the specific thing, but what you've done is you've created a sense of curiosity Mm -hmm. so that the next time they do come back, they're going to be much more willing to talk to you about something that's emotionally charged or that they haven't told other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's but just what you said before, right? The power of that relationship over time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just get to know their story. And it's amazing how often in somebody's story, as they tell their story, they'll highlight something, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and again, you may be aware of some things like, oh, a brother died of cancer or something happened. 
And and so what you'll do is as they're, t- as they're telling the story, you might say something like, "Is that is that around the time when your brother died?" Mm. And you know, just you know, mm-hmm. but use the use that narrative vehicle uh, to sort of uh, anchor when these events happen instead of saying, "Hey, tell me about the worst thing that happened to you." And they're like, "Yeah, no way." But if you start with this, like, "Where are you from?" and you know, like, "How'd you get there?" Do you like it? You know, what was that move like? And did you know? And and it 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 doesn't take as long as you think, actually. But people that's get so intimidated by yeah. that, right? Yeah, that's the other fear. I don't have time, right? I have 15 minutes with this person. And yeah. now you want me to do a, a relational health history or a trauma history or a screening. And that feels like I'm going to open a can of worms. But yeah. you're saying what many physicians have said to me, which is it actually doesn't take a ton of time if you do a little bit each time. That's exactly right. The, the other thing that can help is that we have um materials that a- ask the person to f- just tell us some things about them so like there's uh you know paper and pencil stuff that they can fill out mm-hmm. so that you see this before they come and so you know kind of what what what's in there um and again depending upon what your practice is like you can use different metrics or you can use a different process to have somebody just you know write out some of the key things you know key anchor points in your life, major transitions. One one physician said to me, you know, the trauma is not surprising to anybody but you. So, you know, they know what's happened in their lives. They're the holder of that information. Now you're just honoring them by asking. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Um, Well, I want to be um, respectful of your time. I have uh, what I call a couple rapid fire questions here at the end. All right. (laughs) Um, So uh, what's, what's one thing that people get wrong about physicians? I think a lot of people feel like physicians are in it for the money. And <laughs> I, you know, you know, they, they'll, I can't tell you how many times I've heard even like I, people who are married to physicians, I've heard them say stuff like, man, I only went for eight minutes and it cost me whatever, whatever. You're like, well, God, okay. Yeah. So I, I think that people misunderstand, you know, the sort of the medical, medical economic mm-hmm. issues. And I don't think I don't think most physicians are trying to get rich doing this stuff. All of them have friends that went to business school that are making five times as much money as they are. Yes, absolutely. Um, most of them are helpers. Um, if you know you've you've transformed how people look at trauma and neurodevelopment. Um, if you could go back and tell young Dr. Bruce one thing, what would you tell him? I would I would say listen it's it's going to take a lot longer than you think. You know in the beginning I I it kind of goes back to what we were saying before. I had this naive idea that hey I'll just tell judges about trauma and they'll change the way they sentence. <laughs> like like oh <laughs> what? <laughs> uh no, systems take a long time to change. So you have to sort of have this weird combination of intolerance and patience. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you're not patient, people burn out. They get so frustrated. They they feel like they're banging their head against the wall, and then they give up and angry. And so, don't be patient, um, but be persistent. Oh, I love that tolerance and impa- and patience at the same time. Tolerance and impatience. Intolerance. Intolerance and patience. Yes. Right. 
Um, so often in, in, in healthcare, I think uh, people get intimidated by professionals. Um, will you share, if you don't mind, one thing that makes you perfectly imperfect? <laughs> perfectly imperfect. Um, I, well, I've got a lot of things. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I don't usually dress like a professional, you know, actually I've learned over time that, that I try to do things to intentionally decrease the power difference with Agreed. kids. Yeah. So I give them, I, I don't dress like they, uh, when they see me, they're sort of like, this doesn't fit my idea of going to see a doctor. Yeah. I also intentionally have things that I'm bad at, mm -hmm. that they're good at. So like I used to have a Nintendo set that in my office and I'm like, I, I don't know how to set this up even. And then, you know, you have like four-year-old kids going, oh, guys, you got to plug this in here. What's with you? And then, uh, you know, so I'm, I am really not good at any of those video games, but, mm -hmm. but there's lots of other stuff I'm not very good at. So I'm really bad at paperwork. Oh, so any insurance, any third-party payers out there, don't ask me to do a damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, last one. Hardest question. It's eleven o'clock at night, and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? <laughs> Single malt whiskey. Oh, nice. You are not the first person who has said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're with you're with my husband on that. Um, I I want to wrap up here, but I want to tell you a, just a really quick story, if you'll indulge me, as a way to sure. say for today for your time. Yeah. Um, so I was 20 years ago, a young resident working at um, a community mental health clinic. And my first, my first client was this little four-year-old girl. And she had been horribly abused, was living with an incredible foster parent, um, sexually abused, physically abused. And I had read books by you and articles by you in graduate school. And, you know, I had like eight sessions to like fix this kid, right. Community mental health. And, you know, um, and my treatment goal for her was to get messy. That's all we started with because I remembered you saying, start from the bottom, yeah. right. Just sensory things and work your way up. Cause she wasn't going to do talk therapy with me. She was barely five years old. And so we started this work together and we created treatment goals and, and nobody else, right. By the way, she was being dropped off in a taxi Oh, wow. Um, and so I invited her foster mom in to join us. And we, you know, created this relationship like that. Our only goal was to get messy. And, you know, after many sessions together, she finally came in one day with her amazing foster mom and said, we've been practicing getting messy. And she took this finger paint that only I had been playing in. And she had been kind of terrified watching me get messy. And then she started doing a little bit. And she took the paint and she swiped it across my nose. And it. her foster mom and I looked at her and we were like, that's amazing. <laughs> and then the only next thing she did, Bruce, was turn face away from me because I think her nervous system couldn't handle much more, mm. climbed into my lap and wow. just put her head against me. And I have to say thank you because I think mm. if I had started any other way, than just relational being, breathing, tactile. 
you know, it, it would have had a different outcome. So thank you for being here and, and thank you yeah. for everything you. you've given to the, to the community. You, it really does change lives if people start with small pieces. Thank you. I love that story. I love it. It's, so, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I, I just, it's so nice because it's, she was transitioning into being connected with you. It was so powerful. Wow. Love it. Mm-hmm. Nice yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing work if we do it. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thanks for doing this podcast. I, I think um, since physicians are so powerful and they're at the top of this kind of conceptual hierarchy of dominance, the more of them that kind of get this, the, uh, the, the easier it will be for all the other systems that, that work with these families. I agree. I completely agree. Thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.